this year, score game-changing innovations with limited-time deals on select next-gen Alienware gaming tech. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup, amazing prices, and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We're going to talk about Beyonce once again, because her new album, Renaissance, with its many musical triumphs and surprisingly many controversies, has really dominated music discourse for the past couple of weeks. First of all, I'm going to talk to the producer, Hit Boy. He worked on the song Thick on Renaissance, and he's done a lot of great work with Beyonce in the past. He also worked with Jay-Z and Kanye, with Drake, with Kendrick Lamar, with Rihanna, with Lil Wayne. He produced the Nipsey Hussle and Roddy Rich song Racks in the Middle. Hitboy is also a rapper. He has a new song called Fireproof coming out on the 19th. After that, I'm going to talk with Jeffy Haza about some of the controversies surrounding the Beyonce album. There really are a ton of them, including the post-release alteration of two songs, which raises some really interesting issues. And then, I'm going to welcome back Manka Percante to dig into the actual music and message of the album. But first, here's my conversation with Hitboy. That's that dick. That's that real shit. That's that jelly, baby. Champagne and cherry, baby. That's that thick. So, Thick is one of my favorite songs on Renaissance. Maybe you can take us through the creation of that particular song. Man, it's crazy because I did some sessions with her. Oh, man. Like 2014. I think we actually started working 2012 or 2013. But I did some sessions with her around 2014. And I actually made the beat for Nicki Minaj and Beyonce. Feeling myself the same day I made the thick beat. I want some hood girls looking back at it and a good girl in my tax bracket. Got a black card and let sex have it. These Chanel bags is a bad habit. I, I do balls down Maverick. So I had to sit on that beat for eight years, you know what I'm saying? That's incredible, honestly. It's just like that's the way the game goes sometimes, man. It, it just gave me a lot of perspective because it's been like it, in these last eight years, I've had a lot of ups and downs in the game. And, you know, just like I guess the way the press or like, you know, certain people will perceive like, oh, where's Hit Boy been? What's Hit Boy been doing? But then I'm sitting on stuff like thick that just like hasn't materialized yet. And it's like, y'all don't even know how ahead I really am. You know what I'm saying? Like, there'll be people, you know, commenting on just like before 2019, like Racks in the Middle was when it kind of was a reset for me. And it's like a new momentum. It's like a, a momentum shift, I guess. Double check the details. Gotta cross my teeth and dye my eyes or I can't sleep well. Millions off of retail. Once again, and it's been like a lot of respect. I won a lot of producer of the year awards, but I would say before that, it was just kind of like a question of like, oh, well, you know, it seemed like Hit Boy slowed down or whatever the case, but then it's like I've been holding on to legendary stuff and I got, you know, it's plenty more. I mean, what's incredible about that being eight years ago is that you were already thinking in terms of that house beat for Beyonce all the way back then. That was all there. I mean, she did the intro with a little jewel that, that he made. I think he make a lot of Meg the Stallion beats. So the intro, like the first 30 seconds, the more trap beat, that was another producer. But the house part with the chord changes and everything, like that was stuff that I played that I had already. So you played it for her back in 2014 or so. Did she actually start to record something like this song Thick back then? I believe she started the idea, but you know, it just kind of came to life in the last how you know however many months or like last year or so 
eight years ago, bro, I probably made some thousands of songs since then, so I don't even remember, but, you know, <clears throat> I'm just happy that it came to be now. Did you end up getting back with her in person to finish the song? I actually did, yeah. We tapped in. She played me, you know, a bunch of the album, played me some ideas, and was just explaining how, you know, where she wanted to take it, and <clears throat> that was a dope moment. Anytime we can connect, you know? I did a lot of sessions with her for the Beyonce album, like, you know, spent like months in the studio with her, just like working on, you know, joints. So I ended up doing uh, Flawless on that album. I worked on XO. Don't jealous. Taking one step back. I worked on uh, on the deluxe. I worked on ring off. Until you had enough, then you took that ring off. You took that ring off. So tired of the lies and trying to fight. It's been a bunch of stuff we collaborated on. So definitely respect to her for, you know, just, I guess, seeing whatever she sees in me to have me want to work on one of her stuff. Were you surprised that she revived this song after all that time? Nah, because I, I kind of keep track of all my music. And I, when I go through beats to play for artists, like, I'll skim through, like I might, I might, sometimes I'll play like old classics, like backseat freestyle. Click beat or niggas in Paris, that's just like in my files. So like I keep everything in one place. So I've skimmed through the beat a few times and been like, you know, I might be in a studio with my homie, like, man, bro, on the low, Beyonce got some shit to this, but you know, it's been so long, you don't know if it's gonna come to life. But <clears throat> I definitely, you know, always felt like it was a joint that should be out. Would it be safe to say that you might have songs on the other two albums that are coming out as part of this project? Yeah, ain't nothing safe to say, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, cause even, even, you know, with, you know, us speaking and, and are being hype over the song and even the lawyers reaching out. I'm just still like, man, this is like, this is Beyonce. Like, you gotta think about it. I would say pretty much 98 to 100% of all producers in the world, no matter if you do country, rock and roll, pop, house, rap, R&B, it's a lot of people you gotta beat out to even make the album. She might change her mind the last day before she drop it. Like, you know what, I actually wanna use something else. So until her albums drop, I don't, I don't guarantee nothing. Now on that day you made Feeling Myself and also the Thick Beat, I assume Nicki Minaj wasn't actually there. I actually was just in the stool with Beyonce and we was working on ideas. And that was one of them and uh, I guess, you know, she tapped in with Nicki and, um, you know, they, they created the record, but yes, yeah, like, you know, some of her parts were already there, but I guess she just like, you know, they just put it together and made it a, a whole joint and, and it was, a, it, would, it ended up being Nicki's record. And was Beyonce in the room as you were making that thick beat or was it something you'd already completed and were playing for her? Not probably, probably for a piece of it, but like I was just, you know, I had a room of my own over where she was at and I just was going like you know it's like she wasn't in there all day she had her own studio so i was in there cranking just trying to make as many dope beats as i could and then tap in with songwriters and let her hear what i got you know it's just like i don't know if i made it in there but we definitely was in the same vicinity and what was pushing you in the direction eight years ago of putting a house beat on a beyonce song i have no clue i was just like when i sit down and make a beat I just, I just go with the flow, like literally whatever the, the music is telling me to do, that's just where I go with it, so I can't call it. Like, I think I made a batch of beats for her, you know, a 
probably had the feeling myself being in there, the thick beat and all type of different vibes, super R&B stuff. I just kind of try to just like, I look at myself like a store, like a, you know, like a Sax Fifth or like a Maxfield or, or Ace Lorenzo. I want to have just pieces. Like, you know, you might go in, you might not get the whole outfit, but you might get a jacket, you might get a sweater, you might get a shirt, you might get the pants, but you know what I'm saying? Once you put it all together, it's going to be solid. And then some people pull up and get the whole fit, which is me doing the EP or doing an album. So the songwriter Diane Warren, who I have a lot of respect for, said something a little bit silly on Twitter. She was talking about one of the songs on Renaissance and wondering how it could have 24 writers. And it was a little bit of shade in the way she asked that. And, you know, you're someone who's been involved with Beyonce's songwriting process before. Thick has eight writers. It's common to treat her question as genuine for a second. Maybe help me explain how so many writers end up in the credits for these songs because it, it's actually pretty easy to explain. I saw that play out on Twitter. It's just like producers and like lyric writers as well. Like, so it's like, you gotta combine all that. And uh, you never know because it's, it's crazy. Cause I, so I worked on Sicko Move, right? You know, it's like, it's probably more writers on that than it is on whatever song Diane Warren was talking about. Yeah, you're, you're actually, you're totally right. In fact, Travis Scott Sicko Mode has, let's see, something like 30 songwriters credited, so more than the song that Diane Warren was talking about, which, by the way, I'm pretty sure is Alien Superstar. And when I started it, it was like, I, um... I originated the idea with my boy Roger, and I played the beat for Travis one time, didn't give it to him. Then the night Birds in the Trap came out, I did a song called Way Back off of Birds in the Trap. The night he dropped that album, he was like, man, I got a session with Drake tonight. I need you to send me that beat you played me in the studio. Sent it. And then Drake did his part that night. So the night Birds in the Trap came out. And then so, you know, it just developed. He added two other beats who had however many producers on it. So it just turned out to be, you know, so many. It's like, I, I just like thought it was just gonna be my beat. And then it just switched up. So it's like, it can happen like that. But it's, it's that's how Travis was creating at that time. You know what I'm saying? That's where his headspace was. So it's kind of like, you just gotta respect the artist and the art. Yeah, you're talking about Roger Shahayed the brilliant keyboardist and producer who played on that song. And when I was doing my Jack Harlow cover story a few months ago, I was, happened to be in the studio with Roger, and he was talking about sickle mode. He said he was just messing around with those chords at the beginning, and I think you heard them and were like, I need that. Yeah, he, yeah, he was just messing around. That's what, that's what we do, though. Like, we always tapped in, and once he laid the chords, I kind of restructured them and uh, you know created that intro, how it starts, and then went into the progression more as it was uh as it was developing so it's kind of like was a perfect blend it's kind of like no different from like quincy jones having a keyboardist in the studio and just like kind of guiding the, the situation i think the other thing that people need to understand is every time there's a sample and every time there's an interpolation and for people who don't know what that means it means when you borrow a little bit of an existing song without actually sampling it you might just sing a melody or a, a piece of a melody that's from another song 
or frankly, or a piece of a melody that someone might say is from another song. So for those samples and interpolations, those each get songwriting credits as well. No, exactly, exactly. Same with single mode. It was like, you know, the, the, they sampled some like a Biggie line. So everybody who was involved with the Biggie song, I believe has to be credited too, so. So your path to working with Beyonce started with one of the biggest songs you've ever been involved in, when you made in Paris for Jay and Kanye in 2011. So I ball so hard, motherfuckers wanna find me. First niggas gotta find me. What's 50 grand to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? So and I think you said it was wild for you because you like songs with a lot of chord changes and more complex production. And that was one of your simplest beats ever. And here it becomes the biggest thing ever. Yeah, it's crazy, man, how that like just kind of changed how I, how I think now, like how I move now. I feel like the quicker I make beats, the more people want them. Like, it's like if I take all day and I'm trying to just be drawn too drawn out with the melodies and doing too much, people don't ever go for that. Like if I just make sit down and just make something quick, like they always bite. Like it's, it's crazy, the craziest thing. So like what niggas in Paris just taught me was just like simplicity wins. At the same time, as simple as that beat may be, there's that whole amazing coda where you get to show off a little bit. It goes into a whole different part. Nah, for sure. Now, same with Thick, though. You know, Thick, super simple beat, but then you got like the real disco breakdown with the synth lead that I played and the chords I played. It's just, you know, just trying to elevate it, but still keep it within that realm. And that shit only happens for like four hours. And I think Beyonce was probably around for some of those sessions and that's when she kind of first became aware of you. She was at certain sessions that we had at the worst back in the day in 2011. Like it was the beginning of 2011. She like was aware of who I was around then. And then when you were involved for months with sessions for the Beyonce album, Paint a picture of what that was like. She actually put out some footage of uh, her recording in the Hamptons, and that's where I was. Like, she had like really looked out. Like, I don't have my own studio space to work in. I was staying over there at the spot, and we just like locked in. It was a hell of producers and writers just vibing. It was just like she made a, you know a real creative house, man. It was it was one of those things where it's like, man, this is priceless. This priceless information, priceless talent, and uh, just a chance to really grow. And what did you learn from her? I know she's really hands-on in the process, focused on individual drum sounds, just really digging into the details. Oh man, like the same way, you know, I, I did a lot of work in the studio with Kanye. Like I look at her the same way, like genius level, like just different personalities for sure. But she definitely just is relentless in the studio. Like she want that, she wanted to not, she wanted the melodies to be right. Like she really, just even listening to the new album, like she really, singing her ass off but it just sounds so wavy you don't really really understand how like how much talent it takes to pull this shit off you know what i'm saying jumping ahead a little bit you produced bow down what was your thinking behind that one Um, I was basically trying to make a niggas and parents female version that balancing with that synth like some fun something fun that she and I mean obviously you look at the lyrics she talking crazy like talking rapper shit like you know what I'm saying bow down like it's crazy so just to bring that energy out and to go to her stadium shows or her shows and just see the reaction is like wow like the energy I was trying to convey really went over well. You've worked with so many different artists and so many different styles that I think that one thing people say about you is, oh, he doesn't have a, a signature style. I used to definitely feel like he was like, 
type of curse, but as of late, I'm just like got a new found perspective on it. And it's like, that's part of my longevity. Like, you know what I'm saying? People ain't burnt out on me because they haven't had a chance to be like, I didn't make 10 clicks. You know what I'm saying? And I used to envy like a, a DJ Mustard who could like literally kind of make the same beat essentially and just like have a different artist on it and it's just a win. Like, damn, like how do you catch that? Like I even tried to like make like more niggas in Paris and it just didn't go over for me the same. I just got a different path and a different way. So, you know, just like, I feel like it's definitely like stronger than it's ever been right now. So it just all got to catch up to you. You've been doing some great work with Nas the past three years or so. It feels like the culture is still learning how to give older rappers the respect that, you know, rock and roll legends get. But these albums have been getting a lot of positive attention. It's really helped bring Nas back into the conversation. And I imagine that feels pretty good. No, it's amazing. Um, it work, you know, both ways because just even, you know, in the hip hop community, people that really respect the essence, like that's, you know, helped me gain a lot more respect. You know, I've done, I've done songs that's been like number one rap songs and just big joints and pop joints and all that. But when I work with Nas, I just see a different level of respect the type of people who text me, DM me, comment on my stuff, like they look at it and revere it like in a, in a different type of way. Like I feel like that's the most people tap in with me when I drop projects with Nas, cause it's like, and I feel like he's really meeting me 50-50. I'm doing my job completely, he's doing his. I guess it's just the fact that I'm like really putting my heart and soul into everything that we do. Other artists, it's like you kinda hand off the files and then just hope you make it. <clears throat> With Nas, we really locked in. We in the studio, we sharing ideas, we playing music, we just like really figuring it out. We going Ultra Black, I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. We going, occasion we rose to that. Fuck on postal. And I know you're working on King's Disease 3 with him. What's going on with that? Man, Katie 3, that's... That's definitely, you know, we digging, man. We just finding more gold, just finding the gold and just trying to keep that magic, you know, keep actually just leveling up from where we went last. And I think long as we do that, it's going to be solid because that's been like the general consensus. Like, you know, when I talk to people, it's like, yo, every project y'all have done has been better than the last. So we just got to keep that up. So, you know, we really just trying to find it and make sure it's all the way solid. But I think we in a good groove. Today, hip-hop dominates pop culture, but it wasn't always like that. And to tell the story of how that changed, I want to take you back to a very special year in rap. 88, it was too much good music. The world was on fire. fire yeah. I'm Will Smith. This is Class of 88, my new podcast about the moments, albums, and artists that inspired a sonic revolution and secured 1988 as one of hip-hop's most important years. We'll talk to the people who were there. And most of all, we'll bring you some amazing stories. You know what my biggest memory from that tour is? It was your birthday. Yes, and you brought me to Sade. Life-size cardboard cutout. <laughs> this is Class of 88, the story of a year that changed hip-hop. Follow Class of 88 on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know anyone who isn't constantly running low on time. You've got to juggle work and the rest of life. Sometimes you just need groceries or drinks or whatever else, and there's zero time to head out and go shopping. There's one way around that, and that's DashPass from DoorDash. I'm definitely a DoorDash customer, and there's always something a little magical about your groceries popping up at your door. And when you want more from delivery, you can get it with DashPass by DoorDash. With DashPass, 
You get $0 delivery fees and lower service fees on eligible orders, which makes it incredibly easy to save on restaurants, groceries, retail items, and all your local favorites that deliver on DoorDash. And get this, DashPass pays for itself in only two orders on average, so it's worth it right away. And when you sign up, you get special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for only $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code MUSICNOW24 and get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and more. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. That's 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass with code MUSICNOW24. Again, MUSICNOW24. Subject to change, terms apply. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. All right, next up is Rolling Stone's Jeffy Haza. Jeff wrote a great piece about the post-release changes on the Beyonce album and the Lizzo album and what all that means. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk more about Diane Warren's question about how there could be 24 writers on a single song. So, Jeff, what we're going to talk about here is something that I think really started with a tweet from Kanye West a few years ago where he said, I'm a fix wolves. And I think that was the beginning of recorded music as this sort of thing that you could endlessly edit and change like a piece of software or like George Lucas's special editions of the Star Wars movies. And it seems to be just picking up speed with the changes, first of all, to the Lizzo album and now with two different changes to the Beyonce album. This year, both Lizzo and Beyonce happened to remove the same word from their album, a word that's been described as an ableist slur. So it does seem to be a trend, right? And one, again, that seems to have started in 2016 with Wolves. 
Yeah, I think that was just around the time in which streaming really started to take over within music. I think up to that point, the Spotify's and the Apple Music's of the world were getting their footing as far as being, you know, industry players, being a, a major force in the music industry. And I think around that time, you see Kanye then experiment with what he sees as the new dynamic. You know, Kanye is someone who came up in the album era, in the Jay-Z's dropping an album, Eminem's dropping an album, they're number one in the country. You know, you go to your tar- local Target and there's lines outside the door to get the new Eminem CD, the new Jay CD, whatever. So he emerges in that era and then finds himself somewhere at like a peak almost around the life of Pablo in 2016, where, oh, now it's no longer about the physical album at all. And in fact, I can do anything that I want in this new kind of like social space. I will say Kanye probably deserves a lot of credit for seeing the potential of this, but I also think, especially in with what we saw in the Lizzo and Beyonce examples, I think, you know, we're starting to see the more pure corporate side of this, where, you know, I think this won't be the last time that major musicians' album is retroactively changed for any number of reasons. You know, it went from, you know, I think Kanye's artistic, I'm going to be, you know, the Duchamp unfinished project kind of person or whatever to, you know, hyper polished musicians like Lizzo and Beyonce who, you know, they know the value of being clean on social media, not being not having anything in the comments to to take away from your project. So yeah, it's a new and interesting dynamic. We don't own our music anymore. It's fascinating and a little unnerving. And there's two cases on the Beyonce album. There was the removal of what is perceived as an ableist slur from the song Heated, and then separately, entirely separately, I think even more interesting, Khalees complained quite vocally about an interpolation of her great song Milkshake on the song Energy on the Beyonce album. And Beyonce just removed the interpolation entirely, which was an interesting way of dealing with the complaint. I guess what concerns me is that now people know that if you complain about something on an album, they might just get rid of it. And that seems like a dangerous dynamic to enable in 2022. No, I mean, I think that's totally right. And I think, you know, in the Khalees case, that that specifically, I think, is the most interesting right in both of these where i think there's a pretty good case to make for beyonce as a major musician and she has empathy and care for this community that said hey this language you know we we aren't okay with this i think there's a huge positive to be made out of that where it's like she took kind of responsibility and said we don't have to include this language i don't have to make it okay as one of the biggest superstars in the world to use this language i think the khalees example is something a lot more thorny because you know, if you go back and look at Khalees' tweets, a major issue she had with the interpolation didn't have as much to do with its existence there and a lot to do with the fact that she herself wasn't informed of it. She had no part in it. And, you know, her experience in the music industry is more or less an open secret, especially in, you know, the hip hop and R&B world. So I think there's something personal that Khalees was expressing there and kind of as a way of almost not having to deal with it any longer, you know, the piece was removed from the album. And I think that's where what you're kind of pointing out becomes kind of interesting because it's no longer about, oh, you know, I'm doing the right thing here. It's also like, I don't want to have to talk about this. And I think that's (laughs) something that you've got to be careful about, you know, especially when it comes to super rich and powerful musicians. On some level, 
look, I have to admit, I found her removal of the Khalees thing somewhat hilarious. And here's why, which is sort of like, look, Khalees, and, you know, I think we should break it down. Khalees alleges that she was sort of, she used the word thievery, and she feels that she was allegedly screwed out of royalty and ownership on some of these songs she worked on with the Neptunes. And she placed some blame on Pharrell, who said that he's sorry that she feels that way. It seems like management was allegedly involved, too. It's kind of a little bit messy to see who exactly fully is to blame in her mind. But So she feels that she was robbed of this credit and possibly of money, and that then Beyonce was sort of compounding that by putting this interpolation onto her album without consulting Khalees, without making the phone call. But I think, to me, what I found sort of darkly hilarious is that I felt like, and I could be totally wrong because Beyonce doesn't talk, I felt like Beyonce was conveying the message like, look, it was like a few seconds of my album, I don't give a fuck about it, if it bothers you so much, I'll just get rid of it, now shut up. And I just thought it was a funny sort of power move to sort of demonstrate how inconsequential this thing was that prompted a week of rants from Khalees that Beyonce didn't care at all. (laughs) Maybe the, the more generous way of looking at it, okay, is that Beyonce felt bad that, that this made Khalees upset, so therefore removed it to make her feel better. But you can see it both ways, and that's sort of the problem and the blessing of being so silent. Yeah, and I mean, for all we know, you know, Khalees and Beyonce had a three-hour-long phone call and everything's happy-dory now or something. There's that outside possibility as well. But, you know, I think the, to the bigger point is it says a lot about what accountability looks like because mm-hmm. I think a lot of artists, especially in the past few years have made accountability a big part of their brand and how they are a global superstar. It's like you are everything to everyone in a way. And I think, you know, in these retroactive changes, these superstars are also kind of saying, I, we are are perfect. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like, there's no, there's nothing that will come out that will have my name on it that will ever be able to be tied back to anything negative. And I think there's something about that that sort of takes something away from the audience, in my opinion. Um, in the in the case of, you know, language that's offensive to particular communities, I can see a, a much stronger argument for, you know, not including that language. Um, but when it comes to things like the Khalees example, and I think that we're going to start to see a lot more of these, you know, what, what didn't take long for Monica Lewinsky to get on Twitter and say she didn't like a lyric from... Uh, partition, you know, from Beyonce's older album. He popped on my buttons and he ripped my blouse. He monocled and whiskeyed all on my gown. Water daddy daddy didn't bring the towel. Oh baby baby baby. You know, it sets a precedent that where I think power can now be exerted through major art in a way. Like, uh, I, you know, how far are we from Obama, you know, sending a fucking DM or something to someone saying, hey, like, take that line out of your song about me or whatever. There's something that feels almost like lobbying. You know, it's like now there's a new lever of control that audiences don't have control or access to. Monica Lewinsky, and perhaps she was joking, but she pointed out that there's that Monica Lewinsky all over my blouse line. And she kind of suggested that she should remove that, too. If anything, it should have. My, my objection was always that it should have been Bill Clinton all over my boss. But I mean, the way she had it made no sense. But that's another story. It just it, it was actually joking or not. It shows how once you do it, you open the door. I will say with the Abel Slur thing, 
Okay, I mean, there was a great article in Slate that pointed out that part of it is the international nature of these artists. The word they used is considered much, much more offensive in the UK and Australia. And I frankly, I don't know about you, I had no idea about that. So that's just sort of ignorance on our part as Americans. I knew it was, that it wasn't a cool word to use anymore, but I didn't know how deeply offensive it is in those countries and how much it's been deeply offensive for many years. It's sort of like, like you said, you can understand why they would edit it. There's also the Black Eyed Peas example that I mentioned in the piece that I wrote last week. You know, they had a song with the R word literally in the chorus, and it took almost a year before the new version to come out. You know, as much as that new version became a huge hit, the Black Eyed Peas went on for great success. Let's get it started. Let's get it started. It's not as though that mistake is erased from history. Like, we can still go and find that original version. It's still on people's CDs. It's still on different places. And I think increasingly, it's been like a very subtle and slow shift away from audiences having any control in that manner any longer, where now it's very much more, you know, I open my phone and whatever Apple decides is the version of the Beyonce Drake album that I'm going to hear today is the version. And I don't have any more... You know, it, it changes what, you know, what we call cultural memory, where it's like to not have like a firm grounding to stand on from like, oh, let me think back to this album. And then you actually can't anymore because the only thing confined to some altered version. I think that changes something on a bigger level that we haven't quite contended with yet. In 1996, Michael Jackson had that song, They Don't Care About Us, and he had the lines, he had the lines, uh, Jew me, sue me, everybody do me. <laughs> kind of unexpected from Michael Jackson and there was a bit of an uproar and he actually uh, re-recorded some of those and re-released the album. But what he couldn't do was grab the CDs out of everyone's house and give them new ones. He spoke to a professor of communication studies who pointed out that it's the corporations ultimately making these changes. She said it's a nested series of complex dynamics over basically who gets to write cultural history, who gets to maintain the public archive. And as we all know, whoever controls history controls the narrative. And it's a fair point. Yeah. And I think, you know, as much as we talk about this slur using these two songs and how in large part that's a positive outcome, you know, I point out in my article where one of the most well-organized groups of people on the internet right now are the far right. We open this door and it's, we're not that far from a lot of other types of claims being made about music targeting specific demographics. And we enter into a, a really thorny debate about censorship and, you know, how things get interpreted, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're in this age of misinformation, right? And I think we've all got to be careful with what sorts of standards we allow to become normalized. It's funny, I joked to someone that uh, Beyonce is also considering removing Crazy in Love. And they thought I was serious uh, because, which does, honestly, it does show the potential slippery slope here. That word is, is considered by some younger people to also be able to slur. I think also a big part of this whole story, I think, is like we've gotten away from a place where anyone does something wrong and then it's like discussed and talked about. And I think we now have this attitude that's it's like hyper focused on like some sort of result. So instead of it being like Beyonce made this track, there's this offensive lyric in it. 
and we spend time hearing from people as to why it's offensive, it's like within a few days, it's deleted, the movement won, on to the next thing. And I think that dynamic doesn't actually advance culture, doesn't advance any sort of understanding, and it kind of just creates these sort of proxy wars almost between online factions, you know, like... Yeah, well, maybe what it does is, is it deprives us of the real chance for a teachable moment. Right, and, uh, and that's, that's what having a, a record would do. You know, that's what having the ability to go back to it would do. I, I guess it's a tough thing because that word, like I said, is truly considered a genuine slur. And I guess from that perspective, you don't want a, a genuine slur on these superstars' records. Like, in the CD world, right, it would have been the CD came out, the controversy happened, so then all shipments after that would it be amended, right? Right. So then there would be a little cottage industry of people who had the original pressing versus the second version. If you, you know, talk to any like vinyl record heads or anything like that, most things were pressed a bajillion times. There was like all kinds of different alternate versions with this track on the B side and that other track on the B side. So I don't think it's a matter of the lyric should stay there as a matter of posterity, but you know, in in media, right, we do corrections and we add the correction at the end of the article to say what changed. And and truth be told, Media does also, for minor things, also does ghost edits all the time. Every brand does it. Maybe we're all guilty of this on, on, on some level. It may be just the nature of the digital world. You're always going to lose the original by the time you're done tweaking it. Um, but we're just it's just unsettling to see it happen in actual art. I do think we should also talk about the Diane Warren 24 Writers incident. We're talking about Alien Superstar. Unique. That's what you are. I think what she said wasn't really defensible because she, even she isn't defending it, but it gave people a chance to explain a little bit more about what the process was, including the dream, who we've been trying to interview for three weeks and, and we haven't gotten him. But the moment that Diane Warren insulted him, he started tweeting. So maybe we were using the wrong approach. But I think, you know, she's coming from, for one, it sounds like a very classic standpoint, right? Where it's like back in my day. You made records, you sat in a room with maybe one or two other songwriters, and you guys cranked out classic records. And it's not it's not totally unrelated to even what we're talking about with retroactively changing lyrics, where there is something, I think, especially if you come from an earlier era, I imagine, as someone who's not from an earlier era, but there is something I would imagine that is a bit disorienting about this new process. I think the whole way the sausage gets made in this new era is a bit odd. <laughs> I don't know that Diane Warren was like, particularly like smart and how she approached that but i don't think it's totally unfair to say that like it is kind of crazy the way things work now right and i talked to hit boy elsewhere in the episode about this i mean some of it is just you know every producer gets credited and there might be multiple producers there might be multiple songwriters and then on top of that there's the samples and interpolations and part of what i think people are missing is that a lot of this or some of this is the is a post blurred lines phenomenon after Robin Thicke and Pharrell were successfully sued for just taking the feel of a Marvin Gaye song, that sparked an absolute panic in the music industry. And what they're doing now to prevent these lawsuits is if they even kind of borrow a taste of an old song. They just throw them a writing credit to shut them up. 
And they're doing that in cases where they never would have before. So in some cases, that's what this is. So that adds, it's on top of multiple producers, multiple songwriters. You have interpolations and samples, and samples, which you always had to credit, but interpolations are being, probably most people would say, overcredited. That's part of what's going on. I do think there's something very wrong with that blurred lines decision, and I think that's like led us down a pretty dark path in yeah, this direction a, in the I music think almost, industry. I think almost everyone thinks it's absurd, and I, I, know, I know it drives songwriters and artists crazy because they have to credit things that they shouldn't have to credit. It makes And it makes coming up in the music industry that much harder because... You know, the only way to have a song widely heard now, if you're a new artist, is for a label to pick you up and deal with all of that, because otherwise you'll be screwed. I mean, look, you know, Diane Warren was an anomaly even in her time, because even by the 80s, people were writing to tracks and stuff. They weren't sitting with a piano and composing a, a ballad. And yet her whole career, that's all she's done, is just sit with a piano, sing and write the song, and then the arrangement is the arrangement, you know. While her hits are from the 80s and 90s and 2000s, her ethos is of even an earlier era. So it's just so alien, you know, she's, she's just an anomaly, you know. In defense of her, I mean, Unbreak My Heart. Unbreak my heart, say you love me again. It'll make them like that. Yeah, you, you can't fuck with that song. And that's a great R&B ballad, at least in the hands of, of Tony Braxton. Look, she had a song on a Beyonce album just 13 years ago, you know? Yeah, I mean, you reach that level of artistry, and I think you get to talk your shit a little, in my opinion. I think it was obviously a, a dumb thing for her to have tweeted. If I were someone's advisor and they said, what would be the last thing I would tweet if I didn't want a really bad day, that would definitely be one of them. Yeah, anything, uh, <laughs> anything upsetting the Bayhive would be <laughs> ideal. Which, I mean, her online fan base is another piece of the whole puzzle here, right? I wouldn't say she relies on the Beehive, the Bayhive, uh, for everything, but I think it's a huge, huge part of how she is successful currently. And I think upsetting that fan base is something that she doesn't want to do. In general, I think one thing that's incredible, and it just shows Beyonce's incredible continuing relevance and strength as an artist here in one of the longest careers in, in, in pop music right now, is the amount of controversy and conversation she's generated with this album without saying a goddamn word herself. You know, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, the celebs are starting to not say things. Like, so there's an interesting dynamic at play there where I think, and it kind of goes back to the sort of retroactive changes in, in accountability where I don't think anyone wants to go out and say, like, I did this thing wrong. I made a mistake. No one wants to admit it. No one wants to say the words. They just want to quietly, like, make controversy go away. And I think the the mistake is thinking that there can ever be that you can ever reach a state where no one's mad at you. <laughs> like, that state cannot be reached. I don't know if Beyonce's making the mistake. I'm just saying, in general, there's that. I think artist handlers have this ideal world where no one's mad at anything you do, and that is a false goal. <laughs> yeah, no one in regular life gets to go, gets off that easy. So why would a celebrity, you know? And I think one of the things, talking to Taylor Swift in 2019, one thing that helped her not lose her mind in the wake of the sort of backlash she faced for a while was realizing that that state is unachievable. As one of the most famous people in the world, especially, you cannot have everyone like you and be happy with what you're doing. It just is impossible. You know, all albums are open to change now, and Kanye really did open the door. And he did, we should say, he did in the end finally fix Wolves. So. He did fix Wolves. <laughs> and, and someday maybe... Maybe we'll fix Down to T. Yeah. Lost out, beat up, dancing, found out. 
So finally, here's Rolling Stone's Monica Percante, who wrote a beautiful piece you should check out about the spiritual message of Beyonce's Renaissance. So you've had a lot of time to think about Beyonce's Renaissance, and you've written about it. First of all, the one thing that's most obvious about this album, which is really incredible and really deep and really layered and rewards multiple listenings, it's clearly, among other things, it's sort of a love letter, as a lot of people have put it, to black queer creators of dance music and other genres. Yeah, I mean, I think that in that way, the themes that I pulled out of it from like my initial listens of like celebrating the self, celebrating confidence, celebrating being in community are especially potent when we think about the way that the album reveres and is influenced by Black queer musicians and artists and culture. So the music critic Craig Seymour found this clip of a bishop calling for the rebuke of the sample specifically of Twinkie Clark on Church Girl. Meanwhile, by the way, someone needs to sample that and put it in another song. Oh my God, it's like Kendrick with the Fox News sample. I don't like it's just, it. It's just dying to be put into the remix, right? I mean, maybe that's the real goal here. It's sort of an inevitable response because of the themes that you read into that song. You know, I won't put words in your mouth, but I mean, there, there's, and as I was saying, there's sort of a queer reading of that song when she sings, nobody can judge me but me, I was born free. There's a lot going on in that song. Maybe you can break down what you think is happening there. Yeah, I still, one of the things that I think Beyonce is communicating on Renaissance is freedom being found in the self, in the body, and in community with other people on dance floors and spaces where you're celebrating your physicality. The combination of those themes and flipping gospel sort of on its head in Church Girl is really important. So in the context of the queer influence and reverence on this album, Church Girl becomes even more significant because of the way that people have used religious doctrine to defend homophobia. I think that that makes the song special in regards to creators that have such a deep influence on the music. And I think it makes it special to anyone who has felt subjugated by people's judgment or criticism of them from like a religious standpoint. And of course, this sort of axis of sacred and profane and the use of gospel influences in secular music is at the very core of the history of R&B and soul itself. I mean, it goes back to Sam Cooke. Darling, you sent me This conflict is everywhere, or the resolving of this conflict is everywhere, going way back before there was electronic dance music. So it's fascinating to see her kind of dig into that conflict. And part of, of course, part of what offended that bishop is that all these gospel samples mm -hmm. in, in Church Girl. And it's an album full of samples that are used with a lot of intentionality to call upon various kinds of history. A lot of it is dance music history, mm -hmm. but this is a, a very different and fascinating use of another genre altogether. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would say on the closing track, Summer Renaissance, there's this gospel-influenced build in it with the clapping, brings back that sort of influence. Oh, the way, baby, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that as someone who didn't grow up, like my family is Muslim. We celebrated Ramadan, but you know, like I didn't really like fall deep into a religious practice. I find communing such a spiritual thing. I find music to be such a spiritual thing. And that could be true for someone who is deeply religious, of course. But I think that the way that Renaissance lives in the dance floor, the way that Renaissance lives in the club spaces and that with Church Girl, she takes a step into the world of religion and into Christian themes and reminds us that the freedom that people can feel in that space is similar to the freedom that we can feel when we commune on a dance floor is cool to me. A lot of people who didn't necessarily respond that strongly to Break My Soul as a single seem to actually like it better in the context of the album. saw that from multiple people. Were you among them or is that still not your, one of your favorites? No, I, I definitely am among them. It, I think that, you know, like I was talking to my boyfriend about this this morning, like the beauty of an album is that the sequencing matters so much. It's so much of how the story is told. It's not just the songs, it's the order that you put them in. And the way that Break My Soul falls into Renaissance really, I think, elevates it. It like makes it a part of like a movement. And I think that Break My Soul coupled with there's a line on a song where she's she she does she does this thing again where she is putting herself into the character or like the lifestyle of people who do not have access to as much as she does. So there's a line on a song where she's saying, you know, the world's at war, I'm low on cash, my gas tank's almost on E. Those are things that people are feeling really deeply and things that people with wealth might be somewhat insulated from. To me, as a whole on the album, it sort of painted a picture of connecting folks from all different sorts of walks of life in one space. And Beyonce thinking about the lives and the dreams and the concerns of people beyond herself. And then, of course, just like musically, it sounds so good where it's placed. How did you feel about Move, the sort of Afrobeats moment on the album? Oh my God, you know it was one of my favorite songs. Um, I love it so much. And I, I've been hearing a lot of people kind of comparing it to One Dance. I need a one dance, got a Hennessy in my hand. One more time before I go. Where Wizkid has a contribution to the song, but isn't necessarily a major player vocally on the track. And Thames, you know, she comes in and does like a sort of like bridge of some sort. But the song is produced by Guilty Beats, who is an amazing Afrobeats and African Afropop producer. He produced most of Thames's last EP, If Orange Was a Place. So I wouldn't be surprised if, although Thames has a pretty quick vocal part on the song, if she was involved in the creation of it and to a deeper degree. So I really, 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 really like Move. I love the back half of energy with Beam, tapping into an Afro-Caribbean sort of vibe. I love Heated, which definitely sounds like Aubrey Drake Graham in his like purest form. Like the pettiness, <laughs> the melodies, they definitely sound like a Drake song, but it's really cool to watch Beyonce. Beyonce sort of imbibe that. It reminds me of their collaboration on her self-titled album, Mine.
all the songs that tap into the dance music from like my part of the world makes me feel really good. Virgo's Groove, which is another, you could make an, a playlist of the moments in her career when she drew on that sort of off the wall, roller skating disco, Michael mm-hmm. Jackson thing. Mm-hmm. I love that even in the midst of this album that goes to very new territory for her, mm-hmm. she, she reminds us that she's been kind of working that all the time. And it, it goes back to deja vu. It goes back to a million things that, that drew on that era of sort of Michael and other stuff of that era. And it fits perfectly mm-hmm. in the album. But there's just a lot of great stuff on it. And there's a lot to learn from it in the samples if you trace them and go back through the history of dance music. And I think people thought it was going to be a house album, and it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually very interested, you know, whether awards matter or not is up to everybody, (laughs) everybody's own, you know, judgment or perception. But I'm very interested, you know, when it's time for this to rack up or be submitted for some Grammy nominations where it's going to fall because it's like it's is it an electronic album like sure is it a pop album definitely Beyonce has in the past done really well in like R&B categories but I don't think that's especially what this album is I'm really interested to see when it's time for team Beyonce to categorize this uh in the like limited perception that the Grammys like offers where they're gonna what they're gonna go for yeah well all I know is that I don't know if everyone's prepared for her to get robbed again in Album of the Year. So that like they, they might want to look at that, the Grammy voters, and remember how many times she's been. I can't believe Lemonade lost. I think Album of the Year, it, it would be a very strong contender. Absolutely. I think that's the one category that like stands out as making the most sense <laughs> to me. And it, and it should be noted that, you know, one of the cliches about Beyonce over the past few years is like, oh, she's moved beyond having to top the charts with singles. She's an album artist. All true. But Break My Soul is the number one song in the country right now. That's Mm -hmm. the first time in a long time. So she's kind of winning on every level at the moment and evaporating that narrative too, that, oh, here she is back at number one. So that's our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us five stars or a nice review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify because that is always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening and we will. See you next week. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. The Hills. So what is like your number one question from fans? The primary question I still get asked was, what, is it real? (laughs) (laughs) In 2024, to me, is a surprising question to get because I feel like everybody has been through the reality TV gauntlet at this point. What women binge wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but... Are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.